The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Who's On First edition. It's Wednesday, October 24th, 2018. On today's show, First Man retells the story of the moon landing. It stars Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. And it's also, it's a Damien Chazelle joint. He of La La Land and uh, Whiplash, of course. And then Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is a new Netflixer documentary series starring foodie deluxe Samin Nosrat. And finally, what songs will we still be humming in 100 years? Uh, Let's find out by talking to Slate's own culture editor, Forrest Wickman. Joining me today is Slate's uh, soon-to-be no-longer editor-in-chief, no longer the boss of me, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi. How are you? You're pre-Angelino. I'm pre-Angelino. This is my last week as a Slate employee. And I guess we should warn listeners that I am taking a three-week hiatus from the show during my Between Jobs time so that I will truly be between jobs, but I will be returning to this job. I'm not, I don't know that I'm emotionally prepared. I really don't know that I am. As you as an Angelino, you as an ex-Puba. Try repression. It's working for me. (laughs) (laughs) Just tamp it on down. It goes way down there. All the feelings. Way down there. And uh, of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, how you doing, Steve? I'm hanging in there. Let's uh, let's dive right in. All right. The new movie, First Man, stars Ryan Gosling. He's Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. Uh, Eponym, I guess. Uh, Gosling's Armstrong is a man gripped by grief and monomania in roughly equal parts. Grief for a toddler daughter he has lost to cancer. And for his comrades, lost to spectacular mishaps of the space program. He's stolid, tightly wound, but obsessed with getting to the moon. The movie's directed by Damien Chazelle. You will be relieved to know there are no lectures about the hallowed status of American jazz in the film. If there were, I missed them. Uh, it also stars Claire Foy and Kyle Chandler, a bunch of other people who are terrific in the film. Let's listen to a clip. I don't know what space exploration will uncover, but I don't think it'll be exploration just for the sake of exploration. I think it'll be more the fact that it allows us to see things that maybe we should have seen a long time ago, but just haven't been able to until now. Does anyone have anything else? Yeah. Neil, I was sorry to hear about your daughter. I'm sorry, is there a question? Um... What I, what I mean is, uh, do you think it will have an effect? I think it would be unreasonable to assume that it wouldn't have some effect. <laughs> I, told, I told you he was tightly wound and stolid. <laughs> Dana, I always want to know what you think of a movie. Uh, this one especially, I'm sort of on the fence. Nudge me one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, this movie is kind of a, I'm very curious to hear what you think of it, because it feels like a locked box of a movie in a way. I feel like it was it was made with great care and it evokes a very particular sensation that most space movies don't. It's not a triumphal Apollo 13 kind of buddy movie about, you know, dudes bonding on their in their space travel journey. It really is a portrait, a character portrait of this one difficult person who, as you hear in that clip, is a very emotionally shut down person, very different from the usual expansive kind of characters that Ryan Gosling plays. And slight spoiler, although this happens early in the movie, you also hear in that clip that his daughter, his baby daughter, just who's just about two years old, uh, dies of a, a brain tumor early in the movie. And that happens right in the midst of his 
his aerospace training. So um, so a lot of the movie is about, you know, what he does with that trauma and uh, and how he and his wife, played by Claire Foy wonderfully, I think, um, how their relationship, you know, smolders around that question that he's always repressing. I think this movie is incredibly effective at what it does. And what it does is try to make you feel the feelings of an early astronaut being essentially strapped into a tin can and shot into space. And uh, that kind of sense of the mixture of courage and passivity and kind of powerlessness of the early astronauts is something this movie gets at really, really well. If you're subject to vertigo in movies with swirling cameras, this might not be the movie for you because there are a lot of moments that feel essentially like a carnival ride that's trying to... um, is trying to recreate that feeling, whether it's in, in training, things that happen on Earth, or the actual space scenes. But this movie is so emotionally repressed, or rather is about a hero who's so emotionally repressed and who's kind of the sole focus, that it's sort of hard to know coming out of it what you're supposed to to feel. There's almost an anticlimactic feeling when we finally reach the moon, because of course there's not a lot of suspense in a movie about the Apollo moon landing. We all know they made it, and we all know they made it back. Um, so there's something else going on other than suspense, and the ending has this almost existential quality of emptiness, where the moon is completely silent and uh, and featureless. And I'm not. It, it almost. I was talking about it with the person I saw it with, and saying is almost the end is almost like the ending of The Graduate, where you know Catherine mm-hmm. Ross and Dustin Hoffman are staring off into space on the bus, and you don't know exactly how to feel about everything that's that's just happened. Oh yeah. No, and he shoots her a look which is like what the fuck did I just do? No, that's that's a great comparison. Julia, I think I'm still on the fence. Nudge me. I loved this movie. I loved this mm. movie. I went begrudgingly to see it. Is my professing my love going to nudge you against it? <laughs> I was about to make the joke. I'm glad you did it for right. me. <laughs> let me let me see if I can marshal a persuasive argument. Um First of all, I should just say I'm I love this story. I I love stories of flight. I love airplanes. I love have loved reading about space exploration with my children. Um so perhaps I was a primed candidate for liking this movie. But the metaphor that kept coming to my mind is that this movie does not incorporate a lot of jazz, but this movie is a ballet. It's like a cosmic ballet about how humans are these contained beings. They're like spherical and round and they can never truly connect with one another and they dance closer to each other and come further apart from each other, but they can't quite connect, Um, or certainly at least in the mind of this character, Neil Armstrong, that we get to know. That's what it feels like. Everyone is operating on this kind of these cosmic orbits of, of disconnection. And... I just found it beautiful. I found it beautiful. It is long. Someone walked out at an hour and 40 minutes in and caused me to check my phone and see what time it was. And I was like, oh, okay, 40 minutes to go here. There's, mm. I was on board for this movie, but there's a lot more movie here. But I, you know, and so it is, it's as one might uh, glean from the suggestion that it is a cosmic ballet about disconnection. It's not a, a zippy farce. Um, but, but I found it worthwhile. And I also found myself struck in reading some of the, um, coverage of the movie and particularly Richard Brody's piece about it in the New Yorker. I, I think the movie is very ambivalent about space exploration, space travel, the United States is, I I don't think it's a triumphal movie 
of a worthy cause. I think it certainly is respectful of the astronauts' bravery while also being fairly clear-eyed about their obsession uh, and the toll of the space program broadly and all of the astronauts who die on the way uh, to putting men successfully on the moon and bringing them back. And I, I, I just, I did, you know, there, there are some incorporated scenes suggesting that society at large was not fully in support of the moon mission when it happened um, and suggested perhaps the money might be better spent on Earth or that uh, too many astronauts had died in the pursuit of the cause. But I felt like the movie kind of kept those things in an appropriate perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, okay. So now I'll just say I was I was fucking with you. I love the movie, but here here's um, <laughs> uh, here's why. First of all, I think there's beginning with the opening set piece of the film. There's tour to tour de force filmmaking. I have mixed feelings about this guy's body of work. I think Shirley is a man with a camera and a plan. He um, more than executed beautifully. I mean, there's just moments of uh, of you know kind of euphoric. Uh, use of film as a medium to convey what it what it was like to be a test pilot, what it was like to exit the Earth's immediate atmosphere. Um, you know the like the cuticle of 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 the um, surface of the Earth as something you are now removed from, rising up in the mirrored visor of um, Neil Armstrong slash Ryan Gosling, which is your first experience of space in the film. Is so thoughtful and so poetic. Um, um, and he kind of had me from that point on. I mean, the movie movie plays with claustrophobia and space, like like radical existential cosmic openness of space, infinity of space, and these tiny, tiny, tiny spaces within which we manufacture human meaning vis-a-vis one another. Right. So it's the it's the kind of these you know, the grief-stricken households of these astronaut wa- astronauts' wives who are just like, they're widows. They're, they're, they're like, you know, they're ancient, you know, w- they're, w- they're ancient widows of seafaring men in a way. And, um, and then the, the, so, so the first thing was just simply the, the, the filmmaking of it. And the second thing was, um, I felt the heroism of it. Um, it, 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 in an age when, Jeff Bezos has more money than he knows what to do with. And instead of paying everyone a living wage, he decides he's got to build a space rocket. You know, going to space now is as associated with the, the private monomania of people sitting on, in my estimation, largely undeserved massive fortunes. The idea that this was, I, f- I felt the new frontier Kennedy-esque heroism of the mission, declaring that we were going to do it. Um, I, the tritest part of the movie is the space competition with the Soviets. It's so obligatory, but it was, you know, based in truth. But uh, it was a, it was a remarkable response to. There's a great visual early on in the movie, uh, which just so Hollywood probably didn't happen, but it puts it in does put it in perspective. Where I think it's Kyle Chandler walks up to a chalkboard and he draws a little circle and he's that's the Earth, and then he draws these little dots dots right around the right around the earth, right next to the earth, no more than an inch or two or three inches away from the earth. And he's like, Sputnik. And the second dot, he says, this is Yuri Gagarin, right? And then he starts drawing a line and he needs two blackboards in order to get to the second circle that he draws, you know, could be 15 feet away from the earth. And he's like, that's the moon. That's where we're going. That's superb screenwriting and superb uh, filmmaking. I was I was very impressed by the movie. I was thrilled by it. Uh, it's a little overlong. 
it takes repression so seriously that it gets a little boring. But uh, I'm surprised that it's, Dana, that it's being greeted with uh, ambivalence, unless I have that wrong. I mean, I think it's it just because it has that mysterious quality where you don't know what to make of it. You're not sure what kind of space travel movie it is, that it's provoked these wildly differing reactions. As Julia pointed out, Richard Brody from The New Yorker thinks that it's a, a right wing fetish object, which to me is just kind of crazy. I mean, there is we have to one day we have to do a segment on Richard Brody. Well, I mean, I appreciate a contrarian critic. And there's moments that when I disagree with him, he'll still point something out to me I didn't see in a movie. I just don't see that in this movie. If anything, it could maybe be critiqued for being too apolitical and not placing itself anywhere on the political spectrum. There's a very, I thought, perfunctory feeling montage of um, a combination of a guy who's playing Gil Scott Heron rapping Whitey on the Moon, right? That 60s rap that's essentially a, a critique of space travel and how important it is to the elite. And uh, and then sort of, you know, Vietnam protesters. And there's an old clip of Kurt Vonnegut on TV saying that he thinks space travel is a waste of money and nonsense. And that felt very wedged in to just kind of demonstrate that there were there was this point of view and it wasn't quite clear. It just felt fake to me. And it, it actually, it struck me that this, this script, Steve, is by Josh Singer, who also wrote Spotlight and The Post. And if you remember when we discussed The Post, The Post has a wedged in political yes. montage exactly like that. Remember where a bunch of, a bunch of like Dylan folkies are waving peace yeah. signs? Well, no, or, it's like a mad magazine. Man. Yeah. It's a, it's a Mad Magazine take on the 60s. It's funny, Julia, that this is Josh Singer because it combines what I think of as the unassailable strengths of Spotlight, which is a perfect screenplay, with some of the maybe, you know, historical biopic exaggerations or simplifications. Right. There's really good. Uh, yeah, the post, yeah. There's like very good technical procedural stuff in actually explaining the specifics of the missions that happened on the way to the moon. And then there is, yeah, th that montage, which totally feels distinct. It worked for me because I felt like we spend so much time just staring at Ryan Gosling's face as it's being rattled around in, in extreme some close contraption. Up, yeah. And the movie kind of zooms out further and it, it takes these, uh, it plays with scale. And so first you zoom out to what is he in the marriage, then you zoom out to what is he among the community of astronauts, then you zoom out into what, what how is he understood politically in the United States, and then eventually you zoom out to like the man on the moon. Um, and, and so I didn't find it, I think, as jarring as you guys did. One thing I think would have given this movie a little more personality and punch and a character besides Neil Armstrong and his wife to develop would be if Buzz Aldrin, who's played by yes. Corey Stoll, fantastic casting, had been a bigger part of the movie. I, I will say that I once met Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin is portrayed here as like a glad-handing showboat and perhaps true to that mission. I met him in the green room of The Daily Show, I think when Jon Stewart was still hosting. It might have been Colbert, but I think it was The Daily Show when a slate writer was on. Um, and I got to shake his hand and I... Uh, like the notion of having shaken the hand of a man who stood on the moon remains one of the most thrilling things that's ever happened to me, even if he was a glad handing showboat. So I, I, if you're at all interested in space yeah. travel, see the movie, I think. Yeah, I agree. And it's also it's just like, it needs to be said, it's kind of amazing that Apollo 11 had never had a movie. Um, and this one's well told. Okay. It's, uh, it's called first man. Ryan Gosling, Damien Chazelle, we talked about it. Now you can go see it and tell us uh, we were right or wrong. Okay, let's move on. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure there's business. Julia, what do you have? Yeah, today in Slate Plus, we are talking about 
my Los Angeles syllabus. So I'm taking uh, a few weeks off between jobs. And one of the things I'm going to do is consume a bunch of Los Angeles media. And so I have asked you guys to tell me what should I read? What should I watch? What should I be consuming to uh, get myself into an Angelino frame of mind? We'll be discussing that and uh, soliciting listener recommendations in Slate Plus today. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is the name of a cookbook by Samin Nosrat, an American chef and foodie extraordinaire. It's now a sumptuously filmed Bechtel test with flying colors passing documentary on Netflix. It's been greeted with acclaim. I loved it. Uh, makes me want to trot the globe in search of the essence of food. Why don't we listen to a clip? Fat. It's nothing short of a miracle. Fat is flavor. Fat is texture. Fat adds its own unique flavor to a dish, and it can amplify the other flavors in a recipe. Simply put, fat makes food delicious. And one of the most important things any cook can learn is how to harness its magic. I've spent my entire life in pursuit of flavor. And what I've discovered is that the secret to good cooking is hiding in plain sight. Just four basic elements can make or break a dish. Salt, fat, acid, and heat. Commit to mastering them and you can become not only a good cook, but a great one. Julia, I'll start with you. Uh... Oh, my Lord. You must have loved this. Tell me you did. I loved this. But I actually did love it. I'm not just offering a command performance. I mean, Samin Nosrat is just so charming. I have her cookbook, and it is... Of the same title? Yes, of the same title, and it's a great cookbook, and um, conveys a similar... I mean, you know, her thesis about cooking, that you should understand the fundamental techniques, and that the fundamental techniques and... And basic types of ingredients travel cross-culturally and uh, that the pursuit of good food is a pursuit for a pursuit of um, kind of human commonalities rather than distinctions and differences. That spirit persists in the book and in the show. I feel slightly hamstrung like a big hawk of prosciutto Um in evaluating why I found this show to be so good, because I'm not a completist watcher of food TV. I don't, I, I have the sense having watched the show that it's very different from food shows and travel shows, largely in the spirit and personality of its host and the way in which that spirit and personality comes through on screen. Um, but I haven't actually watched enough food shows and travel shows to be able to declare that with any confidence other than just the like radiating purity of her curiosity, enjoyment, and vision. Uh, so am I right or wrong? Is this just what all, is this what food shows are like now? It's just the Netflix era and everything is a gorgeous documentary and, and you're globetrotting or is there something special about this? 
I don't watch enough cooking shows to answer that question either. I mean, the critical response seems to be acting like this show is wildly different from anything else on TV. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that I loved it as much as, as either of you guys did, perhaps. I, it made me miss Anthony Bourdain. Since we talked about Bourdain after his death, I had never watched No Reservations before. And I think I talked about this on the show that I had always assumed that it was kind of a, a machismo kind of show, like, you know, watch me eat live bugs and that it was all about, you know, how bold and daring he could be. And when I discovered just what a beautifully written and kind of gentle show and, and how open he was to to travel and new experiences, I got really into it. And I'm still kind of watching my way through it slowly. And uh, I agreed with my partner as we sat down to watch our way through Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, that as gorgeous as the cinematography was and as fun as it was to watch her going to things like the fish market in Tokyo or, you know, a place where soy sauce is manufactured in the way it's been manufactured for hundreds of years or, you know, all these sort of high-end artisanal food production places in Italy, Japan, Mexico, and then in the last episode in Berkeley, Chez Panisse, where she started her career – I just I missed Bourdain's edge a little bit. I love that she's so sweet and warm and she does have a, a wonderful personality. But this show is really, really nice. And, and it's also very, very focused on food and only food. There's not a lot of kind of placing of yourself politically or historically in the in the land that you're visiting. And uh, I don't know, it was it was a little bit a little bit too plinky plunk, happy music. All right. So you're shiny kitchen is for me. Mm-hmm. Fat, salt, acid, heat too sweet. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. I needed a little bit of the the sugar ingredient removed. But that said, I mean, it's good watching. Like, it's very, very easy to sit and just take take in the kind of gorgeousness and the juiciness. And I, I agree, Steve, that it's wonderful that it passes the Bechdel test with flying colors. Like, she cooks with women all the time. When men appear, they're usually right. they're usually sort of secondary. They're, like, secondary. bringing the rice yeah. or whatever, and it's the women that are sitting around the table right. really chowing down. And uh, and so I love the, the pleasure that it took in food. It made the food all look really good. I kind of wish there'd been a little bit more specific sometimes. I didn't think I came out of any of these shows specifically knowing how to make any dish. And I guess in a way mm-hmm. that's just a it's a right. teaser for her cookbook and then you buy her cookbook and actually learn how to make it. All right. Well, stipulated Bourdain is like the great humanist. And of course, because of his early passing, he's on our mind. And it's just it's just hard to compare um, anybody to him or to the show or to his super enlightened politics and the, you know, kind of zest with which he put them over. That said, I mean, I do think this is political in a different way. And Dana, you kind of put your finger on it a couple of different times. One is, is obviously the, the implied, um, but, but unmistakable feminism of it, right? That, that it is women um, talking to other women with men scarcely in a, um, you know, a prominent role at all ever. Very matter of fact about that. So you could miss it as a political statement, but I think it just always in the end, uh, acts as one, um, and uh, when men are in secondary roles. And then and then secondly, you used a really interesting phrase, which to me gets at sort of the essence of what the heart of the show might or might not be. And I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic on this, so I want to hear you guys talk to it if you would, but you said high end. And it's true that the show is sumptuously filmed. I mean, the cinematography is unreal. The care with which every shot seems to be made echoes the care with which food is supposed to be prepared and and eaten and and that's kind of the essence of it right it's the culmination of a of a long um a period of history and food consumption in the privileged west that began in some respects with alice waters in the 1970s discovering bringing back the kind of essential discoveries that 
um, Julia Child and James Beard and others have made in Provence, which is that there's just no separating out how food is grown and farmed uh, and delivered with um, your ability to make um, something meaningful out of it. And, um, and of course, Alice Waters started Chez Panisse, um, where, where uh, Samin Nasrat was, began her career. But so we're sort of at the end of that in a way, and the idea that food should be slow, mindful, um, it should not be mindless and it should not be fast above all. It unmistakably, unmistakably has a um, social and political and economic uh, dimension to it because we are by and large talking about people who can afford slowness in their food and care in its preparation, people who can afford either travel or to go to a Whole Foods to get the proper ingredients to make these kinds of foods. I mean, there is a social class dimension to it. But what I would push back on is she's looking for ancient techniques that were, if I'm not mistaken, were probably quite widespread in the cultures in which they originated. And so the extrinsic and new thing was, was mass production and fast food that wiped out what were um, universal, essentially universal food cultures that were tied to the um, agricultural life cycle of the place in which they arose. And what's sad about the modern era or postmodern era is that we have to spend money in order to re-experience what was once at least something like a common inheritance of all mankind, you know, which is something like a direct and mindful connection to our food and our food sources. Um, and that is a social tragedy, and it does play out in the economic sphere, and it does mean that, that the Alice Waters legacy uh, is very much uh, tied to social class. It's very upper bourgeois, but that's a tragedy we should be forced to feel um, while we're enjoying our pesto and our um, uh, sake. Did you feel like this documentary forced you to feel it? I felt it only because I just have a guilty conscience and I'm a Puritan and I always wonder whether why sensuousness also makes me feel um, like a worm. Um, and um, But I did feel it. I mean, I did, it's interesting to think about. Like, well, who consumed, you know, focaccia, as she says, the foca you know, she's making focaccia and it's this... It's just the whole thing is astonishing. Like, I can't imagine not loving this show. And uh, with this guy who basically says this was peasant food. This was the food to fill the stomachs of the Genoa stevedores in order to keep them working all day. And um, I don't know. It's all, But it's also beautiful and it's simple. I mean, its ingredients are what? Flour, salt water, olive oil, uh, and egg. But it, you know, it, anyway, I, I, did it not make you feel this, Julia? It sounds like maybe it didn't. I think I had the same questions about it, and I'm not sure I feel like they were answered or alluded to in the text, but I think the show is very understated. I mean, honestly, both of our things today have this understatedness to, to their approach. They're restrained in their approach. So embedded throughout this show is some attention to the economics of food. I think that's right. That that I think it is in the text a little bit. I'm not sure it's as much in the text as one might want, but it is there. There is that mention of the stevedores. There is also uh, the nonna with whom she makes pesto, it has a picture of her grandfather at a completed train tunnel with a bunch of workers, and he's the one in the hat, and you wonder, ah, so was your family, was he the proprietor of the work crew? Like what, you're, you're kind of understanding the economics of the people you're meeting. Um, 
And then the fact of its focus on women and the fact of its focus on kind of local production becomes its own set of political motifs. And then the fact that the woman who's bringing you on this world tour is a woman of color who doesn't look like a TV star. I mean, she she's not like dressed up in Rachel Ray kitchen garb. She's wearing what you might actually wear if you were going to visit a olive farm, like work workmanlike shoes and pants and a scarf wrapped around her neck. I mean, she's just, you know, perhaps the high-end food culture is all about the peddling of packaged authenticity and you could choose to be really cynical about it all. But um, there are these quiet touches of where the show focuses its attention and who our guide is and what her approach is that to me made the thing feel really fresh and just held my attention. I mean, this just isn't the kind of show I watch and I was wrapped and kind of avidly texting uh, my husband about it because he is very interested in many of the foods described and discussed. Didn't you guys find, and this is just my my complaint about every single reality show, to the extent that something like this documentary is a reality show, that it was just padded and too long and they could have been half hour segments rather than one hour? Like there were a lot of establishing shots of whatever temple in Japan that we're next to or, you know, slow pans across blooming flowers in the fields of Yucatan. And <laughs> there was just so much of that. I guess that's just part of the cooking show Dana, travel Dana's, world. But Dana's like, <laughs> get to the, the vinegar. <laughs> also, by the way, my a- ASMR is fetish is listening to Dana Stevens describe this TV show. <laughs> That's I my unra- I love that's my, my unwrapping video right we've there. We've got salty peppery vinegar Dana today <laughs> and it's the best. <laughs> in an episode about that. Yeah, I think I was more impatient with this show than you guys. It's it would be great sick watching. It's sort of perfect for like if you had a low grade <laughs> fever and you just wanted to be just washed in pleasant okay, imagery. Okay, a little less a little less pepper, a little less pepper. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. All right, let's exit this segment, shall we? Uh, I love this show. Dan, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry. Uh, Salt, fat, acid, heat. It's on Netflix. Uh, Just don't listen to that. This is so good. You got to check it out. What makes a song last? The history of popular music tells us that Many masterpieces of songcraft and even the most world-conquering smashes are quickly forgotten. So writes Forrest Wickman in uh, Slate.com. Forrest, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, we're good. You decided to tackle posterity in pop music. That's got to be a, uh, that's tilting at a windmill right there. How do we know what's going to be big? Why'd you do this for us? It's, of course, uh, an impossible task. And I look forward to seeing how wrong we prove to be in you know, as as long as I'm around, but uh, I'm the reason we decided to do this actually has to do with the Culture Gap Fest to some extent. I'm glad um, that we're talking about it here because we never really figured out how to work into the package that this started with just an audience question at yeah, a was live. It, it was yeah. a Slate Plus question or a listener question, right? Yeah, I think it was just a, a questioner. I don't think they gave their full name at. Um, a live Culture Gab Fest show. I, I, I don't really want to say when it was because that will reveal how long it took me to actually put <laughs> this thing together. But they asked some version of the driving question of this package, which is, you know, which recent songs, I don't remember exactly how they defined it. We decided to define it um, as songs from the last 25 years will endure. And in, in this case, we're just defining it as, you know, roughly like 50 to 100 years from now. Uh, and you guys talked about it a little bit in Slate Plus or something. Uh, and afterwards, then culture editor Dan Coyce and I just like could not stop arguing about it. And 
um, were really taken with how rich a question it was and like the surprising kinds of songs it produces. It, uh, you know, forces you to think about Christmas songs and how like actually Christmas, you know, arguably the biggest pop hit of all time is White Christmas by um, Irving Berlin. Uh, arguably the most covered song of all time is Yesterday by Paul McCartney. So there you have like a sappy ballad and it just allows you, I mean, that's like a little unfair to Paul McCartney perhaps, but um, it forces you to think about all these types of songs that people love, like so many people love, but don't always make lists like this. Like, I don't know how many lists of uh, like how many song canons Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is you. Uh, I don't know how many of those lists that song is on, but it's a great song that I feel entirely confident people will still be listening to 100 years from now. So what's interesting is that is that the the words American Songbook are on the title of this uh, package, which is funny because you wouldn't have, you know, on first blush, I would have said the American Songbook just doesn't exist anymore. It's like not really a, but I guess in in a weird way it sort of does. Yeah, I mean the the title of the project is um, a provocation for sure. It, like the we it doesn't really make sense to think about a songbook now the same way you would think about a songbook in you know the 1930s or 40s when people were primarily you know buying sheet music and like sitting around the piano at home and playing those songs and now the recording is really primary more so than the songwriting itself. Um, and, you know, when we think of the songbook, we tend to think of a certain kind of very like sophisticated pop influenced by jazz and written in Tin Pan Alley and so on. Um, and so I liked the idea of forming a canon with that kind of prestige that did have, you know, Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone in the top five. Right. One other way that you frame it and somewhere in the copy on the piece is the oldies of tomorrow, right. which is a slightly different question than what we think of the new American songbook. But it gets at the same fundamental principle of which songs will endure. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure that the actual songbook version of this, if we were much more strict about you know what qualifies as a songbook and thought of it more as like, what are the songs that people are going to be singing at home or covering in a hundred years, I'm not sure those results would be that different. Um, you know, our music critic Carl Wilson put together this actually two great playlists of people covering these songs, and it's revealing revealing in a couple of ways. Uh, one way being just that you know these songs are covered a lot, including some songs you might not think would be covered as much, like the Notorious B.I.G.'s "Juicy." It not an easy song to cover. It's really hard to cover rapping as anybody who's ever attempted to do so at karaoke knows. Like it always seems like it would be easy and it's actually way harder than singing. Um, and another thing that was, that I loved about those playlists is that it shows that the way that like the idea of what qualifies as a cover is evolving. And like, we don't just cover songs. We also, you know, remix them and mash them up and stuff like he has Barack Obama, quote unquote, covering Call Me Baby by Carly Rae Jepsen, uh, which is just like somebody editing together, you know, him saying words like this is crazy from various <laughs> speeches, speeches into him, quote unquote, covering the song 
and like yeah like songs travel as much like memes now as they do as you know traditional sheet music what song were you most sad to see left off so there's actually kind of an easy answer to this because it turned out that I I submitted the most objectively boring ballot of anyone because nine of the ten songs I nominated made the list and precisely one did not make it, which is the song Pony by Genuine. I, I'm definitely sad to see it didn't make it. It was definitely like the last one I put on the list that felt like the biggest reach. But I've seen two brides dance to that uh, at a wedding. That was w- like the best first dance I've ever seen. I think uh, people who underestimate that song are to some extent underestimating the movie Magic Mike XXL, which is a, a, a total classic that I know a ton of people like are rewatching all of the time. So I was sad about that one. Um, but I can't guarantee will that one will last as long as you know my heart will go on. All right. Well, can we get to our responses and quibbles? Sure. I mean, this isn't exactly a quibble because I I don't know his music well enough to be a huge fan. But there's no Kanye on here, and that was surprising to me. What What do you think was the um? Can you can you figure out what in the polling would have happened that he didn't appear anywhere on this list? That was definitely one of the biggest surprises to me. I think even in like an early draft of the introduction, we were like. We, we said something or I, I, I had written something like, you know, the Cole Porter, Porter of the future might be Max Martin and the I don't know who I said the Irving Berlin might be Kanye West. And then it turned out he didn't have a single song on here. Similarly, Taylor Swift doesn't have a single song on here. Um, I almost find that more surprising because her songs seem song bookable mm-hmm. in the classic in the classic yeah. sense. sense. Right. Um, I think the answer to both of those is like, OK, it's surprising that they're not on there but is there a specific song that we could all agree on like if i said one two three name the kanye song that you guys think would be on here i think you guys would probably all name different songs and that is probably also true of taylor swift um some people nominated i think like stronger the sort of daft punk uh sampling kanye song um somebody might have nominated power someone did gold digger someone did all of the lights Maybe Runaway, but that song's like eight minutes. I mean, those are both people who's who have been extremely prolific and then whose career ascendancy is a little further towards the end of the 25-year right. span. So there's a part of me that feels like if you did this 10 years from now, it might there might be a clearer sense of which of their tracks might endure in some way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think also I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, two years ago when they were sort of when they were more widely beloved i think both of them uh been dragging if, each other down yeah um if they would have performed better i mean similarly i i remember that when we had this conversation originally like ignition remix i think was the number one song i was like certain was going to endure i'm like so what i'm drunk it's the freaking weekend baby i'm about to have me some fun but as people have rightfully reassessed their feelings about R. Kelly, um, people feel much more squeamish. I did still hear Ignition Remix at a wedding just this past weekend. Yeah, I have to say, I, I have to say that's, <laughs> that is my quibble. Like the, the the notion that we are currently at a moment where the the smart people you've asked to submit songs don't feel comfortable including Ignition right. Remix is one thing. Ignition Remix is going to endure. I'm sorry. It just it just is like I. I 
that a song is a cockroach of an earworm and it will be with us forever, no matter what else we learn about R. Kelly. Like that felt like the one um, not dishonest moment in the songbook because the songbook wasn't dishonest, but the it felt like a reflection of our present moment that yeah. the nominators didn't nominate that song. And who knows? Maybe we'll stop getting played at weddings as our uh, understanding of the man shift. But that 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 was the one, the big one that seemed missing to me. Yeah, I mean, things have moved so quickly that it's hard to know. A song that did make the list is um, Since You've Been Gone, which was co-written by Max Martin and Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke has, you know, at least one serious allegation against him from Kesha. And yet that didn't slow that song down, perhaps because he's not the artist, perhaps because there's not nearly as many allegations. And I felt compelled to mention that and to mention Ignition Remix while talking about that song, but it doesn't really seem to be slowing down that song yet. One other thing that's striking here is like how, like basically this this list pauses that the secret to uh, pop music endurance is just like proper nouns, like name check a holiday, <laughs> name check a city, <laughs> like the, the assertion that Empire State of Mind, I think is in the number two slot just because yeah. New Yorkers are egocentrist. Uh, and love their city and love to hear songs about it. Um, that that kind of checked out in my mind. It's you know in the club and it's it's your birthday uh, refrain might make that an enduring song. Like that struck me as both a funny edit of pop history, like which songs name check occasions or locations that people will continue to care about, um, and also probably true. Yeah, I mean, I think like popular music can both be totally great on its own and also just can be like very functional. I mean, probably the song that we all hear more than any other. I'm sure I'm going to be proven wrong. There's probably a better example. But what I was going to say is just like the happy birthday song. And so that's why you get something like the 50 cent track. And and yeah, I mean, I think pretty much everybody that nominated Empire State of Mind mentioned the fact that we do all hear New York, New York all the time, or at least those of us who are in New York. So it can be very functional to, for particular occasions, and that is part of what makes music endure, I think. Something I found very charming in this list are the occasional songs that even the people nominating them seem to be almost dutifully uh-huh. <laughs> complaining, like, I can't escape this song no matter what I do. Oasis's Wonderwall is yep. on the list, and uh, and I can't remember who it is. Maybe it's Dan Coyce writing about it, who essentially is just saying, we're stuck with this song. It, it may be, oh, it's Jack Hamilton, our, our pop critic, right, who says, this may be dumb as hell, but we will never escape it. And it's too easy to play on guitar. Like, too many too many young guitarists will, will have to have their own version of Wonderwall. We're just locked in. It. Yeah, I think the songs, there were three songs that people nominated very begrudgingly. One is Wonderwall, which has an incredible melody and great production and lyrics that make absolutely no sense down to the title of the song, which is literally just a nonsense word. Um, another is Smooth by Carlos Santana and Rob Thomas, which uh, Billboard declared basically the second biggest hit of the rock era, like basically from the 1950s on. And yet, like, everybody's just so tired of it. And then the third one, and by far the most controversial selection on this list over the last few days, is Wagon Wheel uh, by Old Crow Medicine Show. People from the South basically all know as extremely just as a song that's just everywhere and it's a sing-along at every event in fact i heard that at a wedding this past weekend as well and everybody knew the words but a lot of people 
especially from the North, are like, what is this song? Like, uh, Browbeat editor Sam Adams had literally never heard that song. Do you guys know that song? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Nope. <laughs> hey, can I, th- can I throw some ice water on this? Please. Well, I mean, first I have to take issue with 100 years, because what songs from 100 years ago, from 1918, are we still singing? Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Right. I mean, uh, like popular music was a concept that was sort of still coming into being 100 years ago. Um, And certainly like our entire concept of popular music very well might be different 100 years from now. Originally, the prompt said like 25, 50 or 100 years from now. Uh, And I think somewhere in the like headline writing process, it got revised to 100 years. It's definitely bolder to say 100 years, and I feel much less confident about that, whereas I feel basically 100% confident about 25 years from now, because, like, we'll all be around. Yeah, so I'm making an obnoxious epistemic rupture argument, which is that our habits of consuming pop music, I would even guess in the next 50 years, are going to be so different that longevity of this kind is almost totally out of the question, but it just points up what's interesting about the exercise, which is that, um, you know, pop music is designed to be ephemera it's not like we're asking which you know i don't know you know painting by damien hurst i don't know fill in the blank is going to be around in 100 years and but it just gets caught in other modes of cultural distribution or or uh you know habits of consumption that uh allows it to survive i mean it's it's much more likely to be some kind of a free rider effect than it is to be some intrinsic feature of the music that said I love posterity exercises because they do have a point which has nothing to do with what's going to be around in a hundred years, but, but imagining, you know, this projecting into the future in order to look back into the present is a way of consuming things that exist now and making statements about, uh, value that we're otherwise not tempted to make. You know, if I, if you know what I'm saying, we're we're like so now we're so shy about making hierarchical value judgments about anything that the only way sometimes to do it is to say, oh, this has this is going to have survival value, which can't be gainsaid in the usual ways, right? It's not just some snobs one snobs opinion. Yeah, I think I like I I think I generally agree with all of that. I would just put a slightly less uh, pessimistic like connotation on everything you said. I wish it, both, both in terms of the longevity thing. I mean, I thinking back a hundred years is, is tougher and you have to reach for something like take me out to the ball game maybe. Um, but white Christmas, which I mentioned earlier is only like, uh, it's more than 70 years old. And it also is not, I mean, it may have gotten caught up in various cultural machinery, but it's also a song that has lasted just because like people love that song. You're kind of taking the human element out of it. And as, uh, you know, Carl Wilson says in his piece, I think that like not every, like not every great song will last, but if a song lasts a hundred years, it's probably pretty damn good. Uh, and I think in that sense, the quality of the song like totally has something to do with it. Like I hate the lyrics of Wonderwall, but there is a reason that song has lasted and it does have to do with qualities in that song. I actually think the lyrics of Wonderwall, like the lyrics of a song like MacArthur Park, (laughs) are great in their very nonsensicality. I mean, they're great because they could mean anything and everything. And Yeah, the best defense I can conjure of Wonderwall is that it's maybe a song about 
the songwriter's own inability to make any sense. One of the most well-known refrains is, there are many things that I would like to say to you, but I don't know how. Uh, (laughs) And so he just starts making up words, I guess, which is one approach. And I think, like, the fact that it kind of means any, like, nothing and everything is part of what uh, makes it resonate with so many people. Could we go out on and maybe listen to a little bit of the number one song on the list, which I was so delighted to scroll down to and discover that it's a song that I love, that I would have thought right. was too much of a novelty song, maybe, to to make such a high showing on the list. It's Outcast's Hey Ya. Novelty songs last, Dana. The, arguably, arguably the biggest hit of the 20th century, according to Billboard, is The Twist by Chubby Checker. Just like a novelty da- dance song that people would have thought of as, yeah, just like an ephemera Uh, a piece of ephemera caught up in the cultural machinery um, that people loved. And so it lasted for decades. All right. Well, very fun for us to reconnect. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk popsterity. Uh, thanks, guys. <laughs> that was like the worst. <laughs> Glad you weren't reading the headline for this project. Uh, the dad joke segment has had a lasting ripple effect. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Day Nana. I feel the need to point out because a bunch of listeners wrote in to say this. Remember the dad joke segment we did a few shows ago? That your mm-hmm. ongoing dad joke is simply that. It's just simply the ongoing syllabification and <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it, just the, the rhythmic breakdown of my name into different syllables each week. So thank you for your weekly dad joke. Um, I'm going to endorse one of our prep documents, which I've been doing a lot lately because our production assistant, Alex Barish, just really brings it in the prep doc every week. And... Uh, I think an alternate conversation that we could have had, uh, along with our conversation with Forrest about the the 30 songs countdown uh, on Slate, is the history of the cover song, which is this wonderful piece that Carl Wilson wrote in conjunction with the package, and uh, and just what it means to to sing a cover of these songs from the new songbook. And he made these two incredible playlists that, if anything, I've been listening to more than the playlist of the actual 30 songs, which are extremely familiar to us all. Um, but Carl made a Spotify playlist in which he found unusual covers of every single song on the list of 30. Um, the one that probably changed my life the most that I can't believe I hadn't already heard was Aretha Franklin singing rolling in the deep truly truly great and just brings out the gospel side of the song that was already there but was kind of latent and uh yeah i mean i'm not going to say that i love it more than adele's because it's adele's song and she will always own it in some way but yeah aretha sings that song just incredibly and even wagon wheel the most deplored song on the list of 30 that everybody dutifully put on saying fine fine it will live because we can't get it out of our damn heads is really wonderfully covered by a singer named Lily Kershaw who finds new things in Wagon Wheel. And uh, this is both a funny list, you know, where he finds really sort of witty takes and uh, and a really beautiful list where some of these where some of these singers just dig deep into the song and find something that was never there in the in the first version and and, and honestly just improve it. So it's a Spotify playlist that we'll link to on the show page and it's a whole new way to hear 30 songs that you already know all too well. Excellent. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I have one endorsement and one request today. Uh, 
The endorsement is basically a piece I've been meaning to write for Slate that I never got around to writing. And so instead of writing it, I'm going to just declaim it. Uh, Here is my endorsement. Going late to movies with reserved seats. I have been keeping an Apple note for the last two years where whenever I go see a movie with reserved seating, I note how far past the official start time of the movie the actual picture I'm coming to see begins. And I can tell listeners through research that at Regal and AMC cinemas, largely in New York, uh, the movie never commences fewer than 18 minutes mm-hmm. after the showtime. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you have a reserved seating, if you've gotten a reserved seat and you know you've got a good seat, then you can just choose not to come until 18 minutes after showtime with absolute confidence that you will not miss a minute of the film. I don't totally, I, I actually like trailers and I like seeing trailers in the theater better than I like watching them when they circulate online. I find trailers to be a fun way to learn about upcoming releases. I started doing this largely because the rhythm of recording the show means we basically see a movie every Monday night and I'm often trying to put my kids to bed and my husband is in Los Angeles. And so sometimes I will sneak to a movie and count on that 18 minutes of give so that I can just show up in time for the picture and still put my kids to bed. But great life hack, supported by research. As long as you give it 18 minutes, you should be fine. Stipulated New York theaters, largely Regal and AMCs. That is my endorsement. My request is one of the things I'm doing in my time between my slate life and my new life in Los Angeles is going to Shanghai for a week to visit a friend who's living there. Uh, And I would like to know from our listeners, are any of you in Shanghai or have you spent time there? And if so, what should I do in Shanghai? Please either email us at culturefest at slate.com or uh, at me on Twitter or post on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, or I'm at Julia Turner. I want to hear your recommendations for things I should not miss during my week in Shanghai. All right. That's what I got. I I love that. I mean, I have to say it's totally reciprocal, man. I love uh, shouting out to people when I'm going to a new place on the show to tell me about it. And I love when they ask me about the Hudson Valley, which I've gotten a lot of lately. So let me begin by saying... I'm getting a lot of emails. I'm sending back this now completely standardized document. It's like two clicks. So please, if you are coming to my neck of the woods, uh, I have a lot of suggestions and would love uh, for people to go to them and then report back. That's the only condition is you got to report back. All right. um, So uh, I'm going to reprise two endorsements from the past really, really quickly. One is, um, all right, name drop alert. I went to a listening party with Joe Hagan, the Vanity Fair journalist who wrote the wonderful Jan Winter biography and Franz Nikolai, the really extraordinary keyboard player for the Hold Steady. We were all supposed to bring something we used to listen to back in the 80s um, uh, or something from the 80s and, and sort of try to surprise the other people. I bought the apartments. They've both listened to it obsessively since. That is a spellbinding record. You should listen to the apartments, but they're in London this weekend. I can't go. But uh, th- those two of the shows are sold out, but then the lead guy, Peter, is doing a Sunday show. It's not sold out. You should go check them out. They are so, so fucking good. They don't deserve to be as obscure as they are. Um, anyway, and then um, the other is, I'm just going to hammer the table again because I really mean it. I went to the cidery at the Berry Farm in Chatham this past weekend. Second weekend in a row, I'm getting my Friday night dinner there with my with my 15-year-old daughter. We sit by the campfire. There's a food truck. There's beer. There's wine. It's so 
awesome. It's so perfectly done. And then finally, my daughter is in the habit now of while we're in the car playing the acoustic live aha song, Take On Me. (laughs) It's perfect. It's so good. Check it out. Trust me on this one. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. It's at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. Email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We've got a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens, uh, Julia Turner, for Forrest Wickman, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. I'll be coming for your Ah uh-huh.